Why do we keep pushing on setback after setback? How do you recover from an injury you can't see? Why do you train for a race that has no start date? What is life really like as a pro? We're not really sure, and neither is today's guest, Mitch Docker. This week on Thereabouts Outspoken. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Hi, hello. How are you? How are you doing? Where are you at? Welcome to another episode of Thereabouts Outspoken. My name is Angus Morton and today I am joined by my good buddy, fellow host, Isaac Carson. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing really great. A bunch of top secret collabs just arrived at the front door before we jumped on uh, and I'm super excited to share the details on that with you all soon. And indeed, we'll have some more info about those very cool projects we've been working on over the last uh, six or so months for you all very soon. Along with those top secret collaborations we have coming, uh, we have a film dropping in the very near future, like in the next few days future. It's the first in a trilogy of films, each taking an alternative perspective on the same journey all recorded or all with the, uh, the, the point of view of um, 18 months passing. The first installment of this trilogy features our good friend Nico uh, recounting a journey we did way back in 2018. So stay tuned for the launch in the next couple of days. On to today's show. This week's guest is an old friend and a dear friend, someone I very much looked up to as a junior and someone I was fortunate enough to race alongside in my first season in the professional ranks. Mitch Docker is in his 13th year making a living off of racing his bike. A team captain for Education First, Mitch possesses a humility and objective reason seldom found in a professional athlete. And he has some amazing hair. In a refreshingly candid interview, Mitch opened up about the possibility of never racing again, the empathy required to be a team captain, the changing shape of the pro peloton, life in the peloton, and life after it. G'day Mitch and welcome to the program. How are you doing, mate? How have you been holding up through the uh, pandemic in Spain? It's very nice to be on the other side of the mic, I have to admit, um, and just letting you run the show. I can just sit back and just sort of chill and just watch you make the mistakes from the hosting role. Um, it's um, been an up and down sort of roll, roller coaster over here in Spain. Um, we're entering the fifth week, if not at the end of the fifth week, so we're well and truly into it, to say the least. Um, and yeah, it's been pretty nuts. Like it's like I said, up and down roller coasters. Some days you're just cruising along, having a great time with the family, and other days you realise, hang on, what the hell's going on in the world? Where the hell am I going to be? Am I even going to be riding next year? And you just sort of get overwhelmed, and you just like ride that sort of wave for like half a day until you sort of drink your way out of it that night, and then wake up the next day and it all happens again that's really interesting it's a really interesting point too um most people like you're obviously for the listeners in case you haven't picked it up mitch is australian from melbourne um is currently in girona spain where he's been living for what nearly 10 years now and um what i find interesting about your situation right which i don't think a lot of people speak about is that you're a foreigner in spain it's not like you're back home in Australia um, and you know if everything does go to shit and there's no such thing as EF um, cycling team next year or whatever you like and you don't have a job or whatever happens like you're halfway around the world you've got to move everyone back to Australia you haven't lived there for a long time so has that like is that a big I guess well you just said it was a big stress are you thinking about that at all or are you just is it just sort of you know head down get trained on the ergo and just sort of hope for the best? Uh, I think you have to be smart about it and putting your head down and just like training your ass off, thinking like racing is going to happen in a month, two months, three months, four months. I think that's just like 
a little bit ignorant of what's going on. So I quickly transitioned out of that phase pretty much the first week. The first week I tried to do that. I had this form. I was just about to go into the classics and I was trying to hang on to this form for that first week of lockdown. Because my idea was, yeah, we've got two weeks of lockdown. I'm just going to do some efforts on the ergo. I'm going to try and like pump out the same efforts I'm doing on the road, yada, yada, yada. And I got to the end of the first week and I'm like, I think we got announced that we've got two more weeks on top of the first two weeks. I was like, okay, we're a month in. And I was like, hang on. That's it. I'm done. Like, I'm not going to, I'm done doing this program. And I said to my coach, he said to me, have two weeks off. I want you to have two weeks off. And I literally had two days off and I pretty much made that circle pretty pretty quickly and I came back to the bike, not in a training way, but in a normal, normal, in a ridiculous, the way we are, professional sportsmen, way that we have to tick something off every day, I think, like we're not normal people. And so the way I've sort of been approaching it pretty much the last month is I want to do something every day anyway. Regardless if I was a pro cyclist or not, I'm a nuts person. Even the off-season, I'm running. I'm doing crazy stuff. So now this is just all about me getting that endorphin release, having that sweat every day. And so I think that's what sort of kept me sane, not thinking about, okay, I'm going to be racing the Tour de France in four months' time. What efforts can I do now to get me over the true malay you know like that's just stupid thinking so in the in the bigger broader schemes thinking about next year i'm not really training to save my contract if that sounds really weird because that would be a stupid way to think it's just too hard there's so much unknown you know you could pin yourself this week and then literally be like i can't ride the trainer for three weeks because i've gone way too hard so i've got to think longevity i've got to think as soon as we're allowed to go on the road, I've got to have enough biscuits in the in the basket to go, right, let's pump out a 30-hour week on the road because that's going to happen at some point and I know when. Long-term, I'm thinking about my career next year. It's just like the reality is I could be back in Oz not riding next year and I know that fact and it's taken me a few weeks to get over that. But I've come to terms with that a little bit and I'm trying to just embrace what could be my last time in Spain. You know, I hope not. But it could be. And, and and that's something as well, like two things I want to ask here. Well, yeah, what I want to ask is basically what? why haven't you gone back to Australia to be with family? Look, in the beginning, like I said in the start of this conversation, my idea was I had no idea what this is. And I'm continually, maybe you're like this too, you just continually set these false finish lines. Yeah, yeah, okay, lockdown's for another two weeks, cool, it's all going to be over in two weeks. And you secretly know that's not the truth, but you believe it for the time being. Because you're like, oh, it's going to be so good when this is over in two weeks. But if you actually think of the long term of what this could potentially be, if I knew I was going to be in lockdown for five weeks at this point, if someone told me that day one, I would have lost my mind. I would have never trained. I would have got drunk for five, six days in a row. But at that point, I was like, it's only two weeks, I can handle two weeks and it went two more weeks and I can handle two more weeks and it went yada, yada, yada. So I guess that's the reason why we haven't gone home because it just sort of felt like I was giving up to go home. It'd be like, I only go home when it's off season time and to go home in the middle of the season would have felt so weird to me. Yet the other fact, logistical fact, we don't really have a base back there. So this is our base. And weirdly, I feel closer as a family here. Like, it's just us four here, my wife, my two kids, and we're just we're just doing what we need to do here. This is lockdown. We're not going to see anyone else anyway. Um, so what's the difference? And you said, you, you spoke about, um, you know, confronting the idea of, uh, you know, next year, maybe you'll have to be back. Well, not, maybe you'll be back in Australia and not racing. I want to get to that a little bit later on, but I think... For our listeners, um, who some will be familiar with you, some won't, I just want to quickly go back to the start. What, uh, how'd you get into the sport of cycling and like, where did you, where did you come up and, and, and how did you kind of end up taking those first steps to, I guess, to Drapak? Well, I started like the old worn out story of starting cycling is 
I went to the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney mm-hmm. and um, I think like a lot of people in Australia, we all put our names into this ballad where you got different events and one of those events for us was the track cycling and that particular night, Australia won gold. The only gold medal they won on the track was the Madison. And at that point, we were watching the Tour de France, my dad and I and my brother. And I knew about it, but I was just a bit more of an outside fan. Um, but track cycling, I was like, what the hell is this? This is awesome. You know, like the stadium was erupting that night. We won the Madison, the most exciting event. And I remember yeah, walking Scott away from McGurry. that. Yeah, Scott McGorry, Brett Aiken. <laughs> and just before that, um, Gary Neewon got second, pipped on the line, attacked in the Kieran. Got second. I was just like, walk, literally walked away from that night, going, "What the hell is track cycling? This is awesome!" You know, Dunk Gray had like extra stadium in there. It was packed house, and we went back. and Dad was like, "I think I know a you know local track around the corner, um, Brunswick Velodrome." Went around there, and they ran this Sunday morning clinic, free of charge. Come down, hundred bikes there. Someone's going to fit your size. Some kids riding my bike. That the race before I'm riding the bike the next race whatever so no commitment whatsoever only love you know like if you want to do it you can do it and if if not doesn't matter you haven't hasn't cost you anything t-shirts runners whatever so I did that every Sunday for that summer and after that they went you got a bit of go mate you know you should come down the road season and you know as the story rolls on I went road track and the rest is sort of history but where Drapak came in is it was actually quite a funny story for probably Australians would be a bit more um, connected to this story is I was at a, a state championship and at that time, so those things are bigger than, you know, Ben Hur's like, oh, the States, oh my God, the state championships, Victorian state champs. And I was out there and a local clothing sponsor, Duramondo Cycles, this is under 17, mind you came up to me at the state champs, presented an A4 sheet of paper and said, Mitch, um, we'd like to sponsor you next year. Duramondo Cycles and stated out in that contract was <laughs> two sets of Knicks, two short sleeve jerseys, one set of long sleeve jersey, one one set of arm warmers, two mitts, two pairs of socks. And I was just like, oh my God, I have made it. This is like dream here, here and here. Yeah. <laughs> dream come true. Like I was like pro. And literally at the same time, within the same week, Michael Drapak, whose two sons were racing at the same level, but just a couple of years below me, came up and he was the big wig in local level cycling. You know, Michael Drapak was the the wealthy guy with kids who raced really well and he didn't really know much about him, but he came up and he presented this like unbelievable idea. And he said to me, to my dad, I want Mitch in my team. I'm starting up this team. It's going to be paid riders. Like Jeremiah wasn't paid or anything. And like no one was getting paid. Like I'm under 17 for God's sake, you know. And a contract, like I think it was like ten or $12,000. Um... We're going the Tour de France. This is a pro team. And I was just like, what, what, what is this? And the idea was, it was, aside from all the aesthetics of that, the, the whole idea, which look attracts me very much now, but I can't imagine at the time it attracted me too much because I was only, you know, year 10. But the whole idea of it was, we're going to support you outside of cycling we want you to we're going to support everything to do with cycling but when you need to go to school when you need to do your year 12 when you need to go to university that's going to take the primary step then when you get time off holidays time away from uni that's when you're going to have to race it was this idea that we're going to support you both ways it's not going to be like results based for instance, like the Institute of Sport where if you didn't win that race or you didn't get these results, we're going to cut you straight away. It's like, look, we understand you're not going to go well now because you've got university exams, but now you've got time off. Let's pump it in. Let's go. Let's get some results. And it was a great idea. Like it's a very, very hard idea to make, um, to see it through. 
but you know, fortunately for me, it 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 it, it happens. You know, so right back then when you started in what oh four, he was talking. Michael was talking Tour de France back then. That was the idea. He started with three riders: myself, a, a guy from Shepparton, um, Brad Norton, another guy from Shepparton, Daniel Thorson. Three of us started that first year, and both Daniel and I were going to the Junior Worlds that year, which was our year 12 year. So it was a massive support of what do we do here? Do we just can year 12 and go like Junior Worlds and whatever? And he was like, no, no, no. We can do double. We can do both. And I'm going to support you right there. And, you know, I did both. I did year 12, not very well, but I got through it. I did the Junior Worlds and I went on and got my university degree. So like... It's all a success story now, but at the time it was just like, what do I do here? You know, like I'm not saying I had offers coming out of my my ass, but there was that other road to pursue. Go to Europe, just take my chances there. And it was like it was very hard to make that choice. And I know like I came in, in a very similar way two years later. I'd come off the back of, of um being a first year at the junior worlds, was pretty cracked on that, was racing back in Australia. And Michael came up and and proposed. And at the time, I was actually I was actually being homeschooled. Um, I'd been kicked out of school from from uh, because I just spent so much time riding my bike. And so and um, anyway, I remember there being a very tough decision between going with a program like Drapak, which you got paid, but you had to you had to stay in school. Their program was structured a little bit differently, or you go into the AIS. And the AIS was kind of like that mainline version. I remember that decision like the moment I opted and, and at the time it, it's, it was a huge deal and I probably I really wanted to go with the AIS program but um, ultimately my parents con- convinced me to stay in school and, and take the Drapak program and like you said now I'm really glad I did that but at the time I don't I, I don't think I was I felt like I was making the best decision for my career but it, it kind of put me on the outer a little bit. You were in the Drapak program when you went to the Junior Worlds. Do you want to tell me about that experience? Because I remember I spoke to you like years ago now for disc breaks and we we're talking about music. Um, and you told a story about you going to the Junior Worlds and then effectively winning the gold medal but not being able to hold the gold medal because you were because of a technicality on on how many medals they're allowed to give out. Were you? Do you feel you were put on the outer, or do you feel there's any animosity, or did that change anything? And in regard to that experience, which you know you're essentially a world champion, I don't think the Drapak side of things had anything to do with that. Um, that sort of came down to just general politics of like national selection crap, <laughs> you know. Like I think, which happens pretty much all the time in all national selection teams, where you know, you're on that fringe of like, there's two really good guys in a team's pursuit team and then there's the three other guys that make up the rest and they're almost almost the same. Um, and I didn't pull a great split in the second round. You know, I'm not going to go into that story, but more or less I got left out, more or less left out for the final, which was like a really turning point in my career because... I didn't realize at the time because I just pushed through it and that's what I wanted to do. But a lot of people saw that as a a point to turn away. And I didn't think, I never thought of that, obviously, because I'm still here. But a lot of people went, I'm really, proud's not the right word, but I really um, acknowledge what you did and look up to that because that was a point where you could have, you're at that age, you're influential just to go, you know what, fuck this, I'm out. I put everything into this. I've pretty much written off my year 12. I've packed all these hours into it. And you're at that age where you're so influential of like, screw this. I'm going to go and party and drink and whatever. For some reason, for me, it made me want it even more. Um, And I think when I think about cyclists, something I talk about quite often is we all know people who are 10 times more talented than us. Uh, I'm talking about guys who are pro. Yeah, there's still talented guys and everyone who's professional is talented, but we all know guys that are freaks that never made it. And I think that's what makes us the best athletes. We need these speed humps along the way. And so it's guys who work out how to get over the speed hump and come back that make the best professional. Um, And 
on my own podcast, I did an interview with Darren Olympi about his speed humps along the way. And actually, during that interview, I started realizing, hang on, anyone who's been pro for 10 years has had a shitload of problems. No one's had a smooth run. But we've all worked out how to be there. Let alone the guys who become professional. And I think there's a fair, there's a small minority that are just freaks that just get it really easily. But like 80% of guys are fighters. And that's why they're pro. And that's just, I guess, the very beginning. I could have turned away then, and but I kept pushing on. And I was just like, nah, this is, this is what I want, you know. From there, I want to talk about our brief period where we raced together on Drapak. Well, just I just want to talk about the tour of guitar, the guitar, because I have this distinct memory of the first stage. <laughs> the stage was 151.2 k's long, and it was no turns for 151 k. But the first 200 meters were like going kind of like in a perpendicular direction, and like you and I moseyed out <laughs> the back of the peloton, and then we, and then the race turned right. And we're immediately dropped, like completely doomlined out the back of the race. Um, and we're in the back group chasing. And I, I think our average speed was like 52.5K an hour for 150 or 170K, whatever it was. And we still were like six or seven minutes down on the leaders. It's so funny thinking about that because uh, so many things I think about when we did stuff as the Drapak guys, because we were pro-continental that, at that year, we did races that were just like so far above our heads in so many levels. Like one, physically, but two, just as experience-wise. Like I think of Tour of Qatar, like that race, you have to know how to race a bike to do that race. It doesn't actually matter how physically strong you are. You can just get piped in that race just if you don't know how to race. So we came in there on two levels of not good enough. One, we didn't know how to race at European level. And two, we weren't physically strong enough. So we were just like ultimately <laughs> pushing shit uphill. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, two good things that came out of Qatar for me that year was I attacked. No one attacks in that race. And I don't know why or I would never do that now. But for some reason... I made front group one day and it was like five or six K to go and the bunch sat up in a headwind part and I decided to attack. So what happened was I was the only guy on screen, which gave me heaps of exposure. This random red team that had been dropped every day, suddenly they're attacking in Qatar. Mitch Stocker, who's this guy? So my name got noticed. And we went to Lane Cowie, which was a slight level lower, not super lower, but just a little bit. You know, half the teams were good, half the teams weren't. And we are sort of that middle cusp. But we were riding on this awesome form because we just come off like the hardest race we'd ever done. We had like four or five days recovery. We came to Lankawi and we were all flying. I remember the whole team was going awesome because we were just like, oh my God, I can actually move here, you know, opposed to just getting like piped and like riding 50k an hour out the back. So two things good came out of Qatar is that I got noticed in Qatar and then I did well in Lankawi, which ultimately sort of got my contract things rolling. It didn't seal the deal, but it got my name in the mix. And from what I've learned over all the years is got to get your name in the mix and you got to get the results at the right time. You don't have to win at the right time. You just got to get your name up there at the right time. Um, so yeah, when I think back at those two races, like I just think how amateur we would have looked and... And how amateur we really were, you know, like, and they're hard races, don't get me wrong, but I just, I just laugh at myself now. But, you know, you got to go through those points. It's another, it's another speed hump, you know, for another metaphor, because we could have just gone, you know what, screw this, it's way too hard. Totally, totally. I remember that. I was barely 18 when I when I started that race. It was my first ever race as a uh, outside of the junior ranks. <laughs> it nearly killed me. How did you then go from there? And like, what was your time like on Skill Shimano? It was pretty hard. Um, I remember I landed that deal. Sort of the clincher for that deal was, like I said, I spoke to the Skill Shimano. Not like I said, but I spoke to the Skill Shimano DS at Qatar. 
they were like, yeah, look, we've got like a bag full of 100 names. Cool, let's just add him in the bag. He's made the bag, more or less, with that moving guitar and Lankawi. He's moving up the bag, but he's still in a bag of 50 dudes. Then uh, we ran across and I raced like some some Kermises, which were what I've learned is you've got to do well in races that the teams know. So you do well in a race that the team doesn't know, they don't give two shits about. You do well in a shit race that the team knows, they're interested, you know. So I did, I did okay consistently in some Kermises, so they're like, yeah, yeah, let's chuck him in the next bag, you know. And um, I think what clinched that deal was I finished second in the stage of Lankawi, and then I was able to ride the Junior Worlds, which is the Under-23 Worlds. So I was able to sign with Skill Shimano after the Under-23 Worlds, which was sort of make or break for me. If, if that hadn't happened... Um, I don't think I would have come back and signed. So it was sort of like, it had to happen right now. But what I wasn't prepared for was that first year. You know, I think looking back now, as a junior, you set yourself goals of becoming pro. You're like, my goal is to become professional. And you turn yourself inside out to become professional. You do anything. You sleep on a couch. You train like a madman you do races and turn yourself inside out whatever but then suddenly you become professional and well this is for me anyway I didn't have any goals that first year I didn't know what to make a goal so I came across and pretty much just got my head kicked in the whole classics I mean I might have finished a couple of classics but if I did I was just like way out the back um I was really really lost um and I was just defeated, very, very defeated, and didn't like it. I was living on my own in Holland, um, which is also another element. Uh, coming home from a race where I was feeling like shit, coming home, living on my own, <laughs> you know, brought to tears a few times by small problems, no money, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I pretty much came home from that first year going, I'm dumb. I'm seriously done with this. I don't want to go back to Holland. I've got one more year on my contract. So I'm going to go back and just do the races again and just sort of coast through and just experience it and cash in. Cash in on the on this big money, you know. But um, I did speak to someone in Australia who's who was my gym coach at the time, um, known to me as Whale. And he shed some really good words on me at that time. He's like, look... It's it's really obvious stuff, but it just hit hit home at the time. He's like, "Look, you've made the hard step. You're there. That's the biggest step. All you got to do now is just impress this year and keep this thing rolling. You've done the hard part. All you got to do is just do a little bit more now. Let's set some goals." And I was like, "Goals? They're for wankers. Like, who sets goals? You know? Like, I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to do this session with him just to shut this guy up. You know, he's like a real goal-driven type." motivation guy so I wrote these goals down in my diary and you know I didn't even think anything of it but the next year I won two races you know like this is like crazy shit because I was so far from winning a race the year before it wasn't even funny it was just like finishing a race was like pretty cool it's like oh my god I'm in the bunch you know and I remember writing in my diary, I want to win three races next year. And I want to do this and I want to do that. But I specifically remember three races. And I won those two races that year. And I remember looking back in my diary, I was just like flicking through it one day. And I saw this page, Goals 2010 it would have been. And um, I saw three races. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that actually ticked off two of those races like who the who would have thought that and so I started understanding like the power of goal setting like and I started understanding what had happened that first year that I was aimlessly just sort of floating in this hard world the year didn't the year didn't get easier the next year but I had direction I had focus and I more or less think that's what happened I just sort of focused on something and then put the steps into place after that, you Orica Green Edge. What was I can't remember if that's what even what it was called. It might have just been called Green Edge at the time, but the first Australian World Tour team. 
started to get developed and pulled together and then obviously launched and you were part of that. Can you kind of describe your time, I guess, like even just like the sentiment of being on that team when it was first developed and the feeling and the atmosphere um, of your, how many years was it, three or four or five years on that team? Yeah, I had I had six years on there. So it was, it was pretty cool. Like probably my best year, maybe even my best year to date was 2011. Um Things just clicked. It was that year after I was just speaking about then. Had an awesome classic season. I was up the road in Roubaix. I finished 14th there. I went on. I was in the break in Flanders. Well, sorry, Flanders the week before, Roubaix. The week before that, I was 6th in Gent-Wavelgem. Flanders in the break. Good result in Roubaix. I just had a great classic season and things were rolling. And it was just at a great time um, that... Greenwich was starting to start up and they were looking for Aussie guys, looking for guys to do the classics and, you know, just stars aligned, I guess, for me. Um, came in that team and I was pretty intimidated coming in there. It was like rock star team. All these guys that I'd watched on SBS highlights, Tour de France were in there. O'Grady, McEwen, Lancaster, Davis, you know, the list goes on. Oh, great. Um, Gerens. And suddenly they were just teammates of mine. Um, and I wasn't that first year guy. I was sort of that middle guy that was supposed to know something, but I was actually a first year guy, if you know what I mean. Um, and I didn't really have a good start. I actually, I crashed up in Falls Creek, the first training camp in January, and um, had brain trauma, descent. And I was out till the end of the classics. So I came across my first race was sort of like um Trisilenia, which was in June, I think, or May, I can't remember. And so that's where I started, but it was pretty cool experience. I always remember my first races with like Stewie, Stuart O'Grady, you know, and even even when I think to the following year, probably it's probably better my second year with the team because it's my first real year. Um, being in Torino, Torino Adriatico, and um, Daryl Limpy was leading Matt Goss out at that point, and Matt Goss was like, you know, the the shit at the time, and Impy wasn't on a good day, and I was starting to do some lead outs at that point. You know, very. I was leading Lee Howard out and Adis Cropus. No disrespect to them, but they were just sort of coming up. And um, yeah, Impy was like, "No, nah, no, nah, I'm not up for it." Docker can lead him out, and I was like, "What?" Me and like in front of me was like O'Grady, Lancaster, Docker, you know, Goss. And I'm like, "Oh, well, who's the weak link here?" <laughs> you know, literally shit myself. O'Grady's just like, yeah, mate, get my wheel. And I'll get you to the end. I'm just like, don't fucking lose his wheel. Don't lose his wheel, you know, for like 300, 200K. We get to this final lead out. It's like pissing rain. I'm just like, well, screw it. If the wheel in front of me makes the corner, I'm making it too. I am not breaking. Lancaster's in front of me. I cannot lose that wheel. And just followed the wheel you know, to the death, and um, actually, Gossie won that day, and um, yeah, I remember, look, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the best lead out in the world, but he came off me, and went off another guy, and won the race, so, I was just like, oh, yep, looks like Duck is in the mix, baby, but no, I was, it was a pretty cool moment, because, you know, like, actually, the year before, I remember, sorry, I forgot about this, I rode the Vuelta in 2012 with Alan Davis and um, that was my first experience leading out and I was really, really intimidated and really nervous and I just wanted to do the right job. I had Julian Dean, um, which is a well-known lead out man as well, helping me out and I was trying to do this job I'd never done before in a Grand Tour for two guys that I was just like intimidated by. I think, not to go on and on and on, but I think I'm just sort of processing it myself when I think about what happened and I think about myself in my current state now is that 
you have to really just look at these guys as the same level as you, which is because once you become intimidated by these guys, then they're not doing anything different. It's just your opinion of them. It just sort of made me feel very anxious. And at the end of the day, once I got over that point and realized I was just another writer, you know, I just started performing just to my ability anyway. Exactly. And then can we just go back? You said something like right when you started your career with, with Green Edge, um, you had a big accident, had brain trauma, and you came back from that. Can you like talk a little bit about that comeback process? Because there's gotta be quite a bit of there's gotta be quite a bit of trepidation and, and things like that coming back out of out of um out of injury after such a serious life threatening injury. Yeah, I think um that was a special special crash in terms of it's a funny injury. If anyone's ever had something like that, they'll know what I'm talking about is because you don't have any physical injury to show anyone. For instance, you break your arm, you've got all gravel rash on you, whatever. Anytime someone sees you, they're like, whoa, dude. <sighs> There's sympathy there. Whereas you got brain trauma, like you probably got like 10 times worse than gravel rash, but no one sees it. So they can't, can't put any sympathy there so you naturally also don't give yourself any time to recover and I remember at the time um, I didn't understand it either but the only thing I can really there's two things I can really remember from that is one Swain Tuft emailed me I didn't really know him that well at that point we'd only been in the team for like whatever a month emailed me it's just like if there's one piece of advice I can give you take your time he'd just been through something like that himself a couple of years earlier and at the very moment I didn't really read into it but as the recovery process started I started to understand because I'd I'd look back on myself a week early before and go well I was a bit of a crazy last week but I'm okay this week the next week I'd go on I'd be like oh my god I was still crazy last week but I'm, I'm okay now and yada 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 and you just be like, holy shit, you don't realize until the next week on that you're still like completely screwed. So the recovery process of that and what was the drive? I don't know what the big drive was. I guess <laughs> I'm just trying to think about it. Why, why do I want to keep coming back? I'm just trying to think about that. Like I've had this big... Big, big crash in Roubaix. This big crash in Roubaix as well, like a few years ago, where I could have walked away from it too. It's like, why do I want to come back to this sport? It's like, and I and I guess that's the real question. I think is why do you keep coming back? Like you said, you had that massive accident. Then a few years later at at Roubaix. I guess it's just like, I don't want to be defeated. Um, I guess it's probably going to be like when we started this conversation and we eventually said, and I said to you, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen next year. And maybe I said that pretty casually, but yeah, I'm probably pretty scared that things could be out of my control. And if the team doesn't exist, maybe I'm not even in another team because they're strapped and they've got their own riders to sign and yada, yada, yada. And I just said that so casually and something I've fought for for so long this is my 12th year professional, so it's something I've done for a long time and I guess that's my, yeah, it's my mentality that I wouldn't do this and there's so many hard moments, it's hard to explain to someone who's not doing this sport. To do a, to do a grand tour, the, this is a, a grand tour or a classic is the best thing to explain. It's like there's so many moments where you can give up like milliseconds of giving up. It's like, it literally takes a second to just go, nah, I'm done. I'm out of this. And you just face with them over and over and over again. And yeah, I've given up a few times in a race and you regret the shit out of it. It's over. I've stopped, I've stopped, uh, I've stopped two grand tours 
and I've stopped numerous classics. And I'll tell you what, you have to live with that and it's it's the worst. And I guess coming back from injury, I wasn't done yet. Maybe, yeah, I wasn't done. I don't know how to put that any better. I just wasn't done. I wasn't, that's not the way I wanted to finish. Hey, yeah, that was a hurdle, but shit, I'm not done yet. I'm I'm coming back. I'm still, you still haven't seen the best of me. I guess that's the best thing I can say is like that fire was still just like it got a bit of water on it, but it never went out. And is it still the same now? Are you still like I've got more years in me? Like, and that's why there's the fear about if it's out, if the end, if the end of your career is out of your control. It's different now. Um, because it's not about me. Um, it's not me who's out of the sport. We're all out of it. And it's out of my control. That feels a little bit different. Um, coming back from those injuries, it was sort of in my control. You know, I could slowly plan my process. I could see the end date. I could see the finish line. This is a really weird situation where I'm a bit like, like we spoke about at the start. I want to make this plan. I want to get on the Zwift and I want to pump out two sessions a day and, you know, strip the weight off and whatever. And then all of a sudden I'm like, well, when am I racing? You know, like, It's a thing like it's 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 I don't know I don't want it to be over like this, I guess, but the thing is I'm preparing myself that if the downfall that the downfalls aren't as big, you know like I don't know is that a good thing or is it a bad thing, but I want to fight for it, but I've got no way to fight for it. What can I do? Win like twin Zwift, Zwift races? And like, who gives a shit? What can I do? Call up every director from every team and go, hey, you remember me? They're all like, hey, dude, we've got a full roster still of like a million guys calling us too. So it's just a really weird situation. Um, so I guess that's sort of why I'm sitting on the fence where I'm like, I've got to be open to like all possibilities at this point. And let's talk about like I want to get to um, to some questions about what's next and that sort of stuff. Um, but I just I feel like we should wrap up. Like you know, you kind of came full circle in a way in your career, and that you landed at what is now EF. Um, but it was for a period there, Drapak, right? And Drapak got his team. Michael got his team to the Tour de France. You came on board to that team. Was it still Drapak when you came on board? It was. EF Drapak, yep. It was EF Drapak. And so you did, how was your role and how have the last few years been, you know, after six years on this Aussie team, as you said, you really developed as a bike rider there. Um, what's it been like this, you know, sort of landing where you are now in these last couple of years up to now? I think I was ready for a change. I didn't know what I was ready for. I think I grew comfortable in Orica. Um, without realizing it and I think Orica wanted me to be a leader and I didn't pick up the signals I wasn't ready to be that for some reason I didn't want to be that guy they wanted me to be there until I moved and the change I don't know when I came to the new team they saw me for who I was opposed to I think Green Edge saw me as the young guy still. Um, yeah, got you. And this team saw me as, at that point, I was like a nine-year-old pro. And they were like, yeah, dude, you've been around the block. Mm. And I was like, yeah, well, actually, I, I have. Yeah, I do know some stuff. I have got an opinion. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, yeah, I can step up. I can be a leader. I do know something. And then I embrace that role. Um which is sort of the role I'm playing now. And it sort of rekindled that fire in my, in myself for my career. I didn't really know what I wanted to do in my career. You know, I'd been like a lead out man. I'd been a classics guy. Was it, Where was it going to go, you know? And, and this sort of next role away from the physical side of things, not that the physical side of things slipped away, but it it sort of attributed the physical side of things. I was like... 
Now I've got to be a leader and I've got to lead by example. So I've got to actually be a good writer to be able to to be able to make these calls. I can't be like getting dropped and going, hey, what the hell? How come you guys didn't cover the breaks? It's like, I can't just get dropped. So it actually made me be a better writer being a leader. Um, it's sort of like, I don't know, I always sort of look at the cricketers like, a guy like Michael Clark or Steve Smith, those guys, when they became captain, they stepped up and they started scoring centuries because they had to. They had to lead by example. And I was like, that's the way you got to do it. You can't just be like suddenly captain of the team and just be like kick sh- a shit kicker. You know, like, oh, I'm captain now. I just get out for a duck every day. It's like, no, you've got to be like the best player on the team. And not that I'm the best rider on the team, but I'm like, just try and be like the best I can. How do you train to be a team leader? Like you're not, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, right? You're not entering a race with the goal ever of winning it yourself, are you? Your your goal is to win it with someone else. So you've got to be like there at the front for as long as possible. You've got to be making like smart, rational decisions when you're completely dangling. What are these factors that go into being good as a team leader physically and mentally? Um, physically, yeah, physically, like I'm trying to sort of push my limits at all ends of the spectrum and not just be one dimensional. Um, I think you got to be able to evolve is something I say to a lot of guys. You got to be able to evolve and realize what the team needs out of you and just evolve to that guy. Sounds easier than it is, but you're like... They need me to get over a climb. All right, I need to start climbing better. You know, and they need me to start leading out. I need to be able to sprint better. Um, and you need to just be consistent. Like, it's just an easy thing to say, but it's something that I think that I am on my worst day to my best day is like a 5% difference. You know, like, I'm there. You can just rely on me. Okay, I'm not like an awesome dude like Peter Sagan. I'm going to ride off the front. But also when I'm shit... I'm not far off what I was when I was good. Um, so you can depend on me. And I think just being reliable as psychologically, I think you just, something different. Every leader's different um, that I see is some guys are really good at the technical stuff. They know the course. They know every mountain. They know the gradients. They know the wind, yada, yada. That's probably not my specialty. Yes, I'm aware of that stuff, but I'm a little bit more aware of the mental state of each rider and something I more can relate to. And I sort of see guys and I can envision myself what they're going through and I try and relate to what they're going through and try and help them through that moment or whatever they need to get through that moment, whether it's talking to them or whether it's like physically showing them they're good or whatever it is. Like I think creating the, the right morale outside of the race that's what I like to do um, because it helps me too. Um, coming in after dinner and playing, you know, it's, it's a common thing, common knowledge now that we play cards after dinner or whether we just talk shit in the bus or whatever. It's simple stuff, but that's what it makes me happy and I just create this cool environment where guys feel comfortable and happy too. You know, talking about understanding the other riders, you obviously have a really amazing podcast, um, Life in the Peloton, which for a long time has been the best cycling podcast. Um, up until up until about two weeks ago, actually, I was just running the numbers when the uh, thereabouts outspoken podcast started. Um, that is a really you, you give us an insight into the peloton that I've never I've I've experienced myself from being in there, but have never been able to articulate. Can you kind of tell me how that came about and what you what you love about 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 being able to have this expression and kind of provide a window to the world of cycling which i think it it desperately needs well i was listening to quite a lot of well not quite a lot i was listening to a couple of podcasts quite frequently when i was writing and i love the idea that this is sort of 5 6 years ago I'm not going to say podcasts were new then, but they certainly weren't what they were now. And I was listening to Rogan a bit, and another podcast that started up then was Jucko Willink. And 
I just love the idea that when I was riding along on my own, that it felt like I was riding with someone, just having a chat. And I was like, this is awesome. So I, I, I sort of loved podcasts at that point. And then I had this idea of when I was coming back to Australia, I felt like I was getting asked the same questions every year, even though I'd been going across for whatever it was then, you know, seven, eight years doing this thing that I thought was pretty well known what I was doing. Everyone kept asking me like really basic questions. So when you're across there, like do you all live in one big house? And like when you're on the front of the bunch, how come you don't just win? Like why don't you just stay there and, um, you know, are you are you sponsored? Like do you get paid? Like what's the go? Like who pays for the bikes? How many bikes do you have? And I'm like, hang on, most Australians don't actually know what life is like as a pro you know like what does a pro do and then I started thinking about it like I don't really know many other sports like really I don't really know what a soccer player does or a you know a NFL player or sports that are a little bit foreign to me I don't really know what the life is like so I thought shit how about I just try and explain not be like breaking stories or anything but just do really simple what life is like as a pro in the peloton Hence the name Life in the Peloton. What my life is like as a pro cyclist. Living in Europe, day-to-day things, who's involved with the 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 world of cycling, soigneurs, mechanics, DSs, other pros, what it takes to be a pro. And I something I always say to my guests, look, we're not trying to break stories here. Don't try and talk jargon. Just dumb it down. Let's just talk normal stuff because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to break down what my life is like. And that's where the podcast started. And it rolled on from there because I actually realized that most of the guests I was getting, if not all, I was interested in hearing their story anyway. And I was just picking them, picking their brains for myself. Um, I was trying to find out what makes them tick so I could get knowledge as well. I've certainly found it interesting, you know, as someone who raced a bit as well, like it kind of changed my perceptions on certainly like what fellow bike riders, the way that they lived or the way they perceived um, what they were doing. What comes to my mind is talking to Marcel Kittle and I was asking him, Marcel and I raced together in school Shimano and when Marcel came on the team, I got the feeling that he was winning and no one thought he was going to win. So he just was winning with no pressure. I was asking him, well, what was that like then going to quick step at the time he was on and winning with pressure? People expect him to win. I said, how do you deal with that expectation? And I was asking him that thing in myself when, I'm not talking about myself winning, but when the team expects me to do something and I'm sitting there in the night before the race with this anxiety of, shit, can I do it? I was saying, how does this guy deal with it trying to win a stage of the Tour de France when they're expecting him to win? So I was sitting there going, what's he going to say? This is going to be awesome. This is going to be insight. And it was great, like great insight. He was saying things like I specifically remember him saying, my dad told me once that as long as you give 100%, it sounds so simple, but as long as you give 100%, and you know yourself you give 100%, you can be happy with that. And you know yourself when you don't give 100%. And I I related to that so much. It's such a simple thing. But you know yourself when you give up before you're done. And you also know when you're done and you give up. And no matter what someone says, like, oh, what the hell? How come you didn't win? You're like, well, I was done. And you know, you, you know what? I was really done. But if someone goes to you, what the hell? You didn't win. And you know inside, I actually did give up. You know, like I, I just gave up and like it hit home with me. And that's, I think, to go back on everything we've said, that's that driver inside of all of us professional athletes that no one will know. So if we've got this this expectation that we have on ourselves that we're living up to the whole time and that's the only fire that's burning inside of us. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. Yes, there's sometimes there's these little motivations here and there that push you this way and that way I need to make that team or I want to piss that guy off or prove that guy wrong but at the end of the day you do it for yourself and that's the strongest motivation is that and I can't remember who said this to me recently 
um, it was in the podcast, I think, and they said, I like surprising myself. I like continually going, hmm, didn't think I could do that, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, I like that fact too, you know, like a simple thing like I get set this 10-minute effort and whatever my 10-minute wattage effort, 10-minute watt power is for that, I think, oh, shit, it'd be good to get to that maximum watt and I beat that and I'm like, huh, fuck, I didn't think I could do that and you surprise yourself. It's like the most amazing rush. What's left um, for you to achieve in cycling? What's your current like goal? I think like I'm at this this point now where I'm really um, motivated. As I was speaking about this before, I'm really motivated about leadership. And, you know, it's not about trying to do a better lead out or get over one more climb or what whatever it is. I'm motivated by trying to be a better leader. And that reflects on my physical ability. That makes me get over one more climb. That makes me want to do a better lead out. It's not about just being like the best lead out in the lead out man in the world I want to be a better lead out man because I want to come to that debrief and be like that's what I told you guys you need to do you see what I did there I got him to 100 meters to go and that's what we need to be doing I can't be going like yeah you know what I got to 200 meters to go but actually we need to go 100 meters further unfortunately I wasn't strong enough to do that yada yada that's like I never want to be out of, and yeah, sure, I have to come sometimes to the meeting and say that, but I don't want to have to do that. So that's what, when I'm out training, I'm like, nah, I need to be better than this because I need to be the one who has to, you know, be able to lead by example. And that's what I want to continually do. And I am noticing as I get older that physically things are becoming, I don't know about easier, it's not the, quite the right word, but you are stronger, you know, you can do things you couldn't do as a younger rider. So when you're in those really heated points of the race, you're a little bit calmer, you're a little bit more in control. So I'm sort of liking that. Um, But on the flip side of that, the peloton is changing. And the peloton that I came into 10 years ago or so, compared to now, it's a different, it's a completely different world. So that's also something I'm continually adapting to and something that I'm not necessarily loving, um, but it is challenging me. And I think that challenge is what you need. Um, And I spoke about this before at Green Edge, that you get comfortable. And if you get comfortable, it's when you, you lose that edge. And how's the, how, how is the Peloton changing or how has it changed? Well, I think just with technology, um, you know, I think I came at the end of the doping era and now f- just from talking around with old riders, they say to me, I respect what the Peloton is now more so than when I was there because you guys train harder, you guys recover harder, you do everything much more professional than when we did it because you have to now. Um, because if you don't do the extra mile, you get left behind and there's someone else out there doing it. And there's guys, and we all know it, there's Strava and there's, uh, there's Zwift and these things where people can see what you can do. You can see your data and teams now will take a chance with guys who can just push big numbers and go, you know what? Let's just teach him how to race afterwards. I think a poster when I turned professional was, if you can win a race, we don't care how you won it. If you're strong, if you're not strong, but you're smart, if you just won, you won. Whereas I think now a lot of teams are going, you know what? You've got to be strong first and then we'll teach you how to race afterwards. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's just what the world is now. So... There's a lot of numbers riders in the peloton who don't know how to race. Um, And just changing the way the peloton is, there's not a lot of respect in the peloton anymore. And I speak about the way that people race in the bunch. They think that 
if I can do what Chris Froome can do up a climb, then I deserve to be on Chris Froome's wheel at the bottom of the climb. It's like, well, hey, dude, that's not how it works. But that's how it's sort of changing now. Um, And I guess the older riders are sort of losing that power is not the right word either, Uh, that credibility to go, hey, dude, that's not how it rolls here. But it's like, well... If you can hold my wheel, then you tell me about it later. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I guess I have a question on that. I uh, Coming out like this situation we're in, right, everything's getting reset. Like whether we whether the, the professional racing resumes this year, arguably that's still very, very much a doubt. But when it comes out, when, when, when the world does come out of this and the sport does come out of this, it's going to be different. How do you, like, is there anything you would like to see change? Are there things that you would like to hold on to from that old world of the sport? Or is there anything you would like to see implemented, format, whatever, coming out of this? Look, I would love to see the teams respect what's happened this year. And I've got still got no idea what's going to happen for the rest of this year. And, for instance, if we don't race this whole year... I think it'd be such a sad thing. All the guys who are lo- got their contract ending this year, you know, either don't get re-signed or have to find other teams or whatever. I would just like to see the respect that the teams go, you know what, this is just like a freak year. Let's just reset. Let's just start the new year and let's just respect everyone's contracts and let's just start again. A little bit traditional in that sense that, you know... Um, that's one thing I feel like the cycling is losing a little bit is the traditional side of things. Um, having to move with the times, having to move with like Hammer Series, Wift, whatever. That is the reality of what it, it needs, I guess, with cycling that for sponsors in a time like this. But that's what I fell in love with cycling for, the traditional side of it, that it's a bit old school. It's a bit, you know, out of date. But... That's what I love about it, that it's there's tradition, there's respect, there's you know these unwritten rules. Um, and I feel like it is losing that. Uh, and I hope that it can hang on to that after this, especially after this pandemic. What about life after professional racing? Like what does that hold for you? What, what, what do you hope to achieve after your life in sport? Um... I guess it's probably a little bit more on the forefront now, especially in this situation. It's got me thinking a lot more about it now. I guess I've started to realize the quality of family life um, and how much I really do want to be back around Australian family. But in saying that, this has been such a big part of my life. Not to say it's finished yet, I still do want to stay connected to this world. Um, I'd love to do some commentary along the way or something like that. But ultimately, I would love to start my own little... I would love to start my own little business, whether it is a little food store, a little um, cafe or a little restaurant somewhere back in Australia, somewhere quite removed from this, this world yet still stay in touch with it in some kind of way. I'm not I'm not exactly sure, but there's plenty of ideas floating up in the air. And are you excited for that period of, of life or are you you know, are you not that you need to not that you need to be ready to go there now, but is it something you're looking forward to and excited about? Life after the Peloton? I <laughs> I, I spoke to Taylor actually, Taylor Finney about this last year and he alluded me to something that was quite interesting. He goes, you know, I want to have some. I want to have enough energy to have my next life after cycling. When I finish cycling, I don't want to be a forty-two-year-old guy clacked out from cycling and just be like, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with life. The only thing I can do after this is just like cycling. And it was a really thing, it's something that hit home to me. I was like, yeah, that's true. I do want to have, I love this, but I do want to have enough energy to do something else in my life. Um, 
So, I definitely don't want to end on this note. You know, this this year, this is sour year. Um, but on that note, you know, I've had some great time with my kids. And I've started to understand the quality of life. Like, it's, un, it's not all about me anymore. You know, once upon a time, like we spoke about earlier in this podcast... Junior Worlds is about me and screw everyone else in this world. I'm going to make it. I don't give a shit about anyone. And as time's evolved, it's become about me and my wife, became about me and my first child and now two kids. It's just like times change and your priorities change. So it's just the evolution, I guess, not to get too philosophical, but that's just sort of what happens, I guess. Yeah. Mate. I I reckon that's a, a perfect spot to uh, to wrap up there. Um, this has been fantastic. Yeah, really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Thanks, mate. Thanks for um, letting me come on, on board and hopefully I didn't uh, blab on too much there. I don't get much chance to be on the other side of the mic. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been a gas. Don't forget, we have a new film dropping later in the week as well as a couple more podcasts coming down the pipeline. So keep your ears to the ground and your eyes to the sky. And in the meantime, make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and keep the questions coming. Uh, Send them to us on Instagram and to howdy at thereabouts.co. Yeah, so thanks everyone for listening. I'm Isaac Carson reporting uh, to you live from the Pacific Northwest. Angus Morton, reporting from the Rocky Mountain Range. Take it easy, people. <laughs> I just didn't even say, like, I'm or anything. I'm just like, Angus Morton. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's, uh, I mean, I'm happy with that. Happy with that. You guys got a lot of grit.